Welcome to the Real Rescue Podcast, brought to you by Vertical Helicast. This episode of the Real Rescue is being sponsored by Breeze Eastern. They dedicate themselves to our helicopter rescue world. Since the very first helicopter rescue in November of 1945, Breeze Eastern has designed and manufactured superior rescue hoist solutions. While much of the technology and the unique mission requirements have changed over the past 75 years, their commitment to the rescuers, the operators, and those being rescued has not. Contact them today by visiting them at breeze-eastern.com. Coming up next on this episode of The Real Rescue. We're joined by a guy who started out as an EMT from New England, I might add. He's made his way all the way into an emergency disaster response role. Well, he is here to tell us what that is all about and some of his stories. So please welcome our next guest, Mr. Jeremy Burson. My name is Jason Quinn. I am United States Coast Guard Rescue Swimmer number 500. These are my rescues and rescues from those of us that put our lives on the line every day so others may live. This is The Real Rescue Podcast. Let's do it. Let's do it. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Real Rescue Podcast. Today, we've got a guy who went from EMS and is now in emergency disaster response. Did I, is that right? Huh? That, that's that's about right. Yeah, you got it. All right. All right. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Jeremy Burson. What's up? There dude? we go. How are you? <laughs> good. How you doing, Jason? Man, I'm good. I'm very good. Uh, thank you so much for coming on and joining me. Uh, it's been great. It's actually interesting how you and I connected. We connected through your fiance. Congratulations. That's, thank that's you. Good stuff. Yep. So Miss Cat, shout out to her. She is friends with my wife and she reached out and was like, Hey, I got a couple of people that, that would be good. And you just so happen to wear one of them. So thanks, man. Hey, I, I lucked out in many ways with her. No oh, man. <laughs> oh, a little heart ready. Let's see if we get yeah, the heart there. We go, there we go. It's not working for me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it, man. I love it. Now cats good people. I appreciate it. But um, but for you, for you coming on, so you were in EMS, um, and then from yep. like in your career, you are now down in DC working with emergency disaster response, which is the big role. We had Brad on here, Brad Milliken, not too long ago. He was talking about a lot of stuff he's doing with uh, international disaster response, and conveniently enough, you two know each other. We cool. do, yeah, yeah. But we're not going to talk about him right now. We're not. Brad had his (laughs) chance. Okay, there you go, Brad. But now for you, Jeremy, bring us a little background. How did you get into EMS, and how did you end up getting to where you're at now? And we'll get into some stories in the middle. Yeah, for sure. Um, So I was uh, born and raised in New England, in Connecticut, uh, right outside of Hartford. Yep, good old New England boy. Yeah, Uh, and. for some reason, I don't know why I used to hate the sight of blood. Like that was, I, I couldn't do it. Couldn't stand it. Hated it. Uh, like freaked me out. The thought of death freaked me out. Um, I lived a fairly sheltered childhood. We'll, we'll put it that way. And, um, 
around like the 90s. I don't know if you remember that show, Rescue 911. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, be, yeah. I think like William Shatner used to. Yeah. Um, so I started watching that out of the blue. Um, I think I used to like sneak episodes in every so often because I probably wasn't allowed to. I was still pretty young back then. And uh, like seeing the paramedics, the EMTs, the, you know, sometimes the cops show up and, uh, and just be there to help the community uh, kind of like intrigued me a little bit. Um, so I started thinking a lot about it. Um, you know, at times I was thinking about going to law enforcement. Um, happy I didn't end up doing that. But uh, in high school, I started volunteering uh, for one of the, the major hospitals in, in Hartford um, and their like sterilization unit. It, was sounded really, it sounds really boring, but I used to deliver like all the sterilized tools across the whole hospital. Oh, wow. And it got to the point where I was showing up to the, yeah, this is a height, like probably a freshman in high school, maybe even eighth grade, if I remember correctly. Um, so I used to uh, do a lot of stops in the operating room and got to know a number of the surgeons. And uh, they actually let me come in and kind of right seat with them. Like I was standing right next to the surgeon in the operating room. I've, I saw like a, a neurosurgery to remove cancer open heart wow. surgery, a bypass. Um, oh it was really cool, like really fascinating. Yeah, um, like such a unique opportunity for someone at my age at the time. Um, and that kind of just like got me even more interested in, in helping people. Uh, I was a pretty compassionate, empathetic kid growing up. Um, so between that and Rescue 911, you know, fast forward a few years, uh, I'm going to uh, University of Connecticut freshman year. And um, I was doing like the local campus, so living at home. So I had like nights and weekends free. Um, so I decided to take the EMT class at uh, Hartford Hospital and like instantly got hooked, like fucking loved it. Um, you know, I remember like very specifically when you go through EMT school, you have to do it's usually like one eight hour shift on an ambulance or one eight hour shift in, an, uh, in the emergency department. I did both. And then I actually nice. like kept show I kept showing up. Like the paramedic who I rode with gave me his number. He was like, hey, if you ever want to come back on me, and I was like, cool, I'll see you like three days from now. How's that? Uh, um, just kept showing up. I did like probably four or five shifts in, in the emergency department in the trauma room, uh, a few shifts on an ambulance, and just like I couldn't get enough of it. Um, so all throughout like undergrad, I would um, I would basically drive home to my parents house it was about 45 minutes from campus i would work like friday overnight saturday overnight sometimes sunday overnight drive back to campus for the week and almost every single week again i was just waiting on the ambulance in hartford um any spring break winter break things like that i was working like crazy hours probably like 80 hours a week sometimes uh, it's probably not healthy. That's probably why, you know, my body is the way it is, the way nah, it is now. Minor detail. Um, definitely some back pain from it. <laughs> definitely some like back pain and like, you know, existing injuries. But um, no, I loved it. Um, so I worked in Hartford for uh, part time um, for about eight, eight or so years. Um, had moved to Boston and was actually driving home from Boston uh, like once or twice a month on weekends to do a few night shifts and, you know, keep my hours up. Um, I, when I graduated college, got into like the technology startup space for a little bit and realized it just wasn't for me. Uh, There's no adrenaline rush and working for startups. Um, so went back, uh, started working for Boston EMS um, as a program manager for public health preparedness while I was going to grad school. Um, 
and one month into my role as a program manager with Boston EMS, the marathon bombing happened. Uh, I'll go into that story later. Um, yeah. Uh, yes, yeah. Pink yeah. Kids Day. That yep. was from New England. Um, we know it well. Exactly. Yeah, the most random holiday ever. Yeah. Um, yeah. But um, yeah, so I did the, the program manager role for a bit with Boston and then uh, actually went back into EMS, wanted to get back on a truck. Uh, so with Boston, they actually make you, when you apply, you're an EMT, you already have to have your certification, uh, but they put you through like a, I think it was like a six or eight month academy, similar okay. to, a, to a police academy. Um, you have PT every morning. It's very militaristic. Um, so I did that, uh, got through the academy and then started working on a truck, um, worked in all parts of Boston, um, from Dorchester to downtown to Mattapan. Uh, absolutely loved it. Um, did that for a few more years until I was like, you know what, I think I gotta, I gotta call it. Um, you know, I used to see a lot of the, the older guys around me and, uh, the, the burnout is like severe in EMS. Um, I just didn't want to become that guy. So, um, went over to, uh, to jump back into emergency management and kind of, that's where, I, how I got to where I am today. Nice, man. Oh, that's good yeah. stuff. Yeah. You know, you, you really don't, you're kind of like me. You don't really have a terrible New England accent. Throw that <laughs> where, out where, are you from, where are you from again? I'm from Massachusetts. Like, it's oh, that's right. That's center. right. That's Wista. right. Okay. I'm over by Wista. Like, yeah. You know, yeah. You just follow the pike out. Uh huh. Whenever yeah, I, I tell people that I lived in Boston for 10 years, like, you don't have an accent. I don't believe you. I'm like, dude, I promise. <laughs> Dorchester. It's Dorchester. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. We do we do not pronounce our R's. No, no. It's the an ah. What the heck's an ah? <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, that's funny. All right. Question is when you first got into uh the EMT side of things, you said you got hooked. What got yeah. you hooked about it? Like what happened that, that really sunk in for you? Man, I think it was a little bit of everything. Um, I mean, obviously, there's a huge adrenaline rush when you're going to a call. Like nine times out of ten, what you get dispatched for is like the complete opposite of what the call actually is. So you never actually know what you're walking into. Um, you know, there's there's some crazy calls that you walk into. There's some scary things. You know, I've had uh, you know partners, friends who've gotten thrown like down a flight of stairs by by a patient. Oh my um, gosh. Yeah. I mean, I know people, the people have gotten stabbed in the back of the ambulance. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's some crazy shit. Um, so that sort of, uh, you know, not knowing what you're going to walk into, um, like knowing that you're going to, to help someone, uh, hopefully, you know, help yeah. someone uh, in what might be like their worst day of their life. Um, and just sort of helping the community, uh, being there to, to support the community and the people that you, that you live next to. That's cool, man. I like that. I like yeah. that a lot. So out of that, do you remember like your first call? Did your first or like the first memorable <laughs> I do. call? You do? Okay, what do you got? No, I do. I do. So um, my very first call, like no shit. Um, so when I got my certification, I immediately applied to work uh, to work for the um, American Medical Response in Hartford. Uh, it was a, you know, 911 um, uh, private company. That would support the city but while i was waiting for that i also started volunteering on a volunteer ambulance in uh, a little town right right outside of hartford um my very first call my first shift 
we got called to a nursing home, like maybe like three blocks away from the station. It was me and my preceptor um, and I'm the driver and we show up and there's this like 80 year old woman who is unconscious, um, sort of right in the, like right in the doorway between her bathroom and her bedroom. Um, like check for a pulse, no pulse. We're like, oh shit, we got to work it. Um, so, you know, first call out of the gate was a cardiac arrest. Um, and then all of a sudden this guy walks up, uh, and starts like getting on the floor with us and, and starts working the patient. I had no idea who he was. Turns out it was the chief of the department. Um, so obviously that adds to some, some of the anxiety when you're there. Um, but yeah, with, you know, like a lot of cases, when you've got an elderly patient who goes into cardiac arrest, we, we didn't save her, but, uh, for that to be like the first call out the gate, I was like, oh shit, like. I'm a black cloud. Like what else am I going to walk into? What's next? Oh my gosh. What a first case, like first anything. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. It was crazy. Like not something that you would have expected. You know, I wanted like a stub toe or something out of the gate, you know, <laughs> let me ease into it a little bit. Um, but of course, no. like that doesn't happen. Nope. No, 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 no. That's so funny. Oh my gosh. Yeah. You know, I yeah. can totally see that too with, with medics. They, they're pulling drugs out. They're bringing pads out. Uh -huh. They're doing everything. There's so much going on. And, and you, like, I remember my first cardiac arrest as well. I'm like, oh my gosh, what the? Like, no idea. <laughs> like all, all, all I did was just like, I was just pumping on the chest. Like that's, that's all I could do. Um, uh, like, you know, first day, just like dripping with sweat, like, yeah. you know, anxiety, making sure I'm doing it right. Uh, like, you know, you train on mannequins all the time when you're doing compressions, but obviously it's a very different feeling, uh -huh. uh, like when you're actually, you know, cracking some ribs. So it was very, a unique experience for a first time. Uh, and then everything around you looks like a yard sale. It's just like, yeah. it's everywhere. <laughs> every uh -huh, bag, uh -huh. every pocket's ripped out. Stuff is flying. Yeah. Where's this thing? I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> say though, if you got, if you're working with an experienced medic, like they keep their shit clean. Like they yeah. will, you know, they'll take the drugs out, they'll, they'll pop them open and they'll make sure that they're picking everything up after the fact or like as they're going. Um, like it's the calm, cool, collective medics that you want to be working with who yeah. like don't, don't sweat it. They just, they, they've done it a thousand times. So Man, that's good yeah, stuff. it was quite an experience. Yeah. Oh, that's so fun. I'm so happy you remember yeah. that. That's good. <laughs> so in your yeah, years of working, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was gonna say I was trying to think of what it was, and then it just came to me recently. I was like, "Oh shit, that's it was that cardiac arrest." <laughs> oh my gosh! All right, so now while you're in, for those that don't know, um, so Hartford, Connecticut, Hartford, Hartford, Connecticut is the state capital of Connecticut. Huh? Huh? All right, just so there you go for geography wise, but it is a it's a it's a metropolis. It is a big city, so. You dealt with a lot of people there. Um, just out of curiosity, do you like what stands out to you? Give us like two or three stories that really stands out to you. Oh man, yeah. Um, I was actually just trying to Google what the what the population is at this point of Hartford, um, and obviously it didn't come up. But um, it's it's um, it is an urban area. It's a very like it's a working city. Uh, used to be like the insurance capital of of the world at one point. Um, and then the insurance companies all pulled out. So now downtown is like fairly desolate, not as yeah. empty as like it could be, but um, yeah. So um, 
you know, once you leave that downtown core, it's a very urban area, uh, like very diverse demographics um, across the outskirts. And actually, um, there was there used to be like a very big Jewish population in like northern Hartford, which is interesting. And you see still see some of the remnants of that with like the cemeteries and some of the old uh, buildings that are still standing. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, like, you know, I was I remember one night I was working with a, a partner of mine. Um, we used to call her bloodbath. Uh, oh. She earned that nickname well. And we were just we were sitting in the parking lot. We were sitting in a parking lot like at our posting. And we're like, you know what? We haven't had a good call in a long time. This is probably like 11 o'clock at night, midnight. Uh, we're like, we could go for something like that really gets some blood flowing. Like, let's let's do it. And then all of a sudden we get called to a stabbing. Um, so we show up. It's in the north end of Hartford. It takes us like three minutes to get there. Um, the scene is obviously like chaotic. You got Hartford police there. You got the fire department. Um, I'll keep my, my comments to myself about, you know, firefighters versus EMT. But, uh, um, so, uh, we, you know, we show up and this guy had gotten, he was out grilling in like the side, um, the parking lot of his, of his, uh, apartment building. And, um, some guy that he got into an altercation and the guy like basically slashed his abdomen. He had eviscerated it. So he had his intestines pouring out, um, like, oh shit, like this is, we were just talking about wanting a good, a good call. Like, you know, someone heard us. Um, so yeah, I uh, had to package the patient up pretty quickly. Thankfully it wasn't, you know, it wasn't horrible. Um, you know, they hadn't punctured the abdomen or the intestines, thankfully. Um, wow. But yeah, packaged them up and uh, the, the hospital, the, the good thing about urban EMS is that for the most part, like you're no further than like a 10 minute ride with licensed sirens from a hospital. Um, so, nice. you know, we, we had a, a, yeah, we had a level one trauma center, probably like a three minute drive away, uh, you know, got him over there, you know, um, packaged him up with a wet, sterile, you know, bandaging and all, all that fun stuff like you learn in, in school. And, um, and yeah, I think he, he did fine. So that was, you know, that's always one that comes to mind when you think about like, you know, the quick pace and also like the, the amount of time you actually spend with the patient with a trauma yeah. patient like that, you're, you're only with them, like in that type of setting, you're only with them for, you know, sometimes five minutes, sometimes like 20 minutes maximum, uh, um, if you're that close to a hospital. So it's really like grab and go because the, the, the biggest thing that they need is a, tr a trauma room is a OR. Right. So, yeah, yeah. Dang. Not much yeah, you can do for them in the field. I'll tell you, I mean, I really forget about stuff like that because when I get on the helicopter, it's like it's yeah. If you're calling a helicopter, I'm I'm traveling some a good uh -huh. amount of distance, and we're <laughs> we're with them. we're having conversation. I'm almost bringing my phone out to have movie night on the way back, right? <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah, but that's like that's a good point because you develop a different level of rapport. If like if yeah. you're working in a rural area in the suburbs, the hospital's further away, or if you're doing like medevac, like you develop a, a stronger rapport with the patient, um, which can be good or bad. Um, yep. But yeah, you've, you've got a lot more time to get to know them. And, you know, obviously you have to care for them. Uh, so the, the amount of equipment and medication you need, is probably like double or triple to what we would need in, in an urban, uh, you know, ambulance. So we're setting up um, drips in the back of the helicopter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, oh yeah, Dang. yeah, it's, it's that type of stuff you don't always think about. Dude, I, I, yeah, wow. 
five like five minutes. Well, so let's go. Let's go at ten minute. You arrive on scene. Guy's got his guts hanging out. Terrible. Wet dressing, yeah. big abdominal dressing, and then boom, you're at the hospital three minutes later. Yep. Dang. Yeah. Dude. Yeah. That's that's crazy. Um, yeah, I mean, same thing. You know, there was another call, like uh, probably like five or six blocks away, a couple of years later. Uh, and this guy got shot with a like a high powered rifle, um, and uh, yeah, it was like a you know between the time and actually there was a there was a new EMT on the ambulance, so the supervisor hopped in. It was like, hey, Jeremy, like, I need you to drive. Just get me to the, get me to the hospital. Um, so, yeah, if you know where you're going and, like, the, the system is set or the city is set up in, like, a grid system, it's super easy to get to the hospital. I will say, uh, to dispel a rumor, um, you know, people do not get out of the way for license sirens. They could care less. If it is not them or their family member in that ambulance, they do not give a shit. So you are fighting traffic just like everyone else all the time. Yeah, yeah. Like sirens rolling. Jeez, what? What? Did he shoot himself, or did somebody else shoot the guy? Oh no, someone else. Ah, got it. Okay. Yeah, he'd gotten shot right in the the abdomen and the chest. Yeah. Ooh. So, yeah, a lot, a lot of those types of stories in in Hartford and Boston and any of those major cities, we've got some, yeah. uh, you know, inner city violence and yeah. yeah. Dang, so, I, I'm good for another yeah. one. I, I like these. I like these. Give me another one. Come <laughs> on, Jerry. Oh man. Oh man. Um, I know. So actually, put you like, on one spot. of the most my memorable. Bad, <laughs> no, no, I got gotcha, you. I got gotcha. you. One of my most memorable memorable shifts ever was uh, New Year's Eve. I think it was like 2008. It was either 2007 New Year's Eve or 2008. And working with a buddy of mine, we still keep in touch. Uh, J.M. Walker. He's probably one of the best medics I've ever worked with. Uh, like right around my age, like one of the smartest kids, um, like funniest guys ever. Uh, we used to have a blast together. We were working New Year's Eve and um, obviously New Year's Eve is pretty busy. And on average, like in in Hartford, we were probably doing like one call every hour or so, uh, like normally, maybe like one call every two hours. Oh um, that night, I think we did a 10 hour shift and we did like 14 or 15 calls that night. It insane insane like we were going from call to call like no downtime no dinner nothing um and we get called it was probably like three in the morning i think to uh i-84 which is like a major interstate through connecticut it actually goes from yeah it goes from massachusetts to uh to connecticut um and right between like hartford and west hartford the, the suburb um you know, we show up and there is a car that was clearly had been driving the, the wrong way down the highway. The car flipped on its side. And uh, it's actually, a re- it's a sad story. Um, I think it was a Marine, a Marine veteran had gotten like incredibly drunk, um, like drove the wrong way on the highway, uh, hit a bunch of cars, probably like five or six cars, um, like flipped over. Uh, he was hanging out the out of the car. Uh, he didn't make it. Um, but we show up and my supervisor was already on scene and she was like, Hey guys, I need you to like drive like 300 yards up the highway. There's like three other cars up there. Uh, it had been like snowing and raining a little bit. So the ground was wet. The median was grass. Um, and it was like a very like deep, not a deep divot, but there's like a little bit of a decline to get through there. And there was like 
there was debris all over the highway. So the only way for us to get our truck to the other side is to go down the median. Um, so we go in the median and my partner's driving and he's like hit, hitting the gas and he's like, shit. I'm like, what? He's like, we got stuck. Oh, so I get out of the truck. No. I'm like, oh, what the fuck? Like we were like, we were probably like two, like two feet deep in just mud. And it hadn't rained that oh. bad. We were like, what the, what the fuck is happening? Uh, and there were news crews there, like news crews had shown up. So there were cameras. Um, and our ambulance got stuck in the mud on the middle of a fatal, like multi-car accident. Oh, uh, we're like, gosh. holy shit. <laughs> yeah. So we grabbed whatever gear we could. Uh, we obviously had to like call, call into our dispatch and say, hey, our truck got stuck. You got to send us, you know, another truck or two to, to support us. Um, and we and ran a tow up, truck. up the and a tow truck. <laughs> so we ran up the highway um, uh, to care for a couple other patients. Um, uh, got them, you know, extricated them from the truck uh, with the fire department or from the from their cars with the fire department. Uh, they were thankfully like not too banged up. They definitely needed a trauma room, but they weren't they weren't terrible. Um, so we another truck showed up and we were able to load them up into uh into the other ambulance and we we walk back to our ambulance we see the fire department like three or four firefighters behind our ambulance trying to like push it out uh so we hop in the truck and try to like you know hit the gas a little bit try to you know rock it back and forth a little bit to get it unstuck uh didn't budge nothing we had to get like a soft toe to uh to, to tow us out of it so like fast forward the next morning you know i go to go home go to sleep uh, and this is back when I was still, you know, living with my parents. I was in college, you know, working, working shifts every so often. And I come downstairs after I woke up that afternoon, my parents on the news on and they're like, Hey, did you, did you see this, uh, this car accident last night? Uh, apparently like an ambulance got stuck in the, on the highway, like in, in some mud. I was like, are you fucking kidding me? So the news had picked up on it. Uh, you know, the, the cameras were rolling right on the, right on the ambulance as they were trying to push it out of the mud. Um, like got some great footage. Hopefully it doesn't exist anymore. I don't know where it is. Um, but, uh, yeah, perfect timing. Oh, that's funny. I hate it when that happens. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Tragedy for the people. Like I, I don't wish that on anybody that's and some dude drunk driving. Yeah. Not cool. Not cool. But getting an ambulance yeah. stuck in the mud. That's funny. Yeah, yeah, we uh it took us a very long time to live that down. And I'm sure if anyone from from uh from our time back then is listening to this, I'm sure they'll uh they'll remember that call very vividly. Um but uh yeah, that's a crazy one. Um and the other thing that like people don't always think about, you know, as we're going through these stories, I'm like, oh man, other stuff's popping up. And um when you work in like the town or the city that you grew up in, like you also run in, run the risk of showing up and it being someone that you know that you grew up with, a friend or family member or something right. like that. Um, so we did actually in this very same exact location of that accident, we did another motor vehicle accident uh, a few years later uh, in the middle of the night. And uh, this car was like totally torn apart. Um, and uh, we had to work with the fire department to extricate a patient. Um, you know, two of the, I think there were three girls in the car uh, two of them were still alive. One of them we called on scene. Actually, no, sorry, we extricated her, got to the ED, and they called her basically when we got to the trauma room. Um, and the next morning, I woke up 
uh, after the shift and I was on Facebook and a friend of mine from high school had Facebook me. It was like, Hey, were you at that car accident last night? I was like, yeah. And they're like, it was, I'm not going to say the name, but, um, yeah. you know, the, the girl you took care of was so-and-so like, don't you remember her? It was like, holy shit. Like wow. in the moment, like you're not realizing it. And it was a girl that I, that I went to middle school and high school with. Yeah, so, man. and her sister, yeah. her sister was the one who actually recognized me. Um, her sister was in the back of the car uh, while we were, you know, taking care of her sister and trying to extricate her. And she had to recognize me and, um, you know, a friend of her friend reached out. Wow. So that's the shit that you don't think about. And like, it was always in the back of my mind. Yeah. Whenever I'd show up on a call, it was like, is this going to be the day where it's like, you know, for a car accident, like, it's God forbid my mom or my dad or my sister. Right, um, right. You know, so it's a very, yeah, it's a different you know, mindset that you have to go in with if you, if it's a town you grew up in or a city you grew up in. Dang, I never even thought about that. I left, I mean, I left home yeah. when I was 18, so I've never, never been a really around that. Um, yeah, yeah. I Actually, know. I had a, yeah, I had a, bu a buddy of mine from back in those days who, um, he had to work his dad. His dad went to cardiac arrest and he was working the shift and he was, it was like a volunteer um, ambulance and he got called to his parents' house. So, wow. yeah, it's some scary shit. Yeah. 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 Just some mental trauma that that takes on you. Yeah. I wouldn't I, it's really, it was not something I've ever even thought about again. I'm, I mean, I, I don't yeah. live around home where, where all my friends are. Yeah. Yeah. I grew up with. So it's, yeah, it's never even crossed my mind. Dang. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So wow. anyways. Oh, yeah. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Well, those are cool. Uh, yeah. Uh, I can move to Boston or we can stay in Hartford, wherever you want to take us. No, we can, we, we can, uh, we can move to Boston. We're going to divert real quick to thank our sponsors. Breeze Eastern, the world's only dedicated helicopter hoist and winch provider. Okay, let's go to Boston. Yeah, let's, you say let's you spend move 100, many... 100 miles up the street. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Beantown. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um you were you said you were there for what five years six years seven so i was there um i was there for about five years about a okay. year and a half as a program manager before i went back on the street uh you know to the academy and back on the street um so it was a a different experience you know working like for a city agency like that you're not doing interfacility transfers like getting someone from a hospital to another hospital or to a nursing home uh so it's all 911 service um which is something that like, if you go in to, you know, become a paramedic or an EMT, like that's what you want to do. A lot of times yeah. you want to do the, the 911s when you're early in your career, you know, you could save the inner facility transfers for when you're, uh, you know, close to retirement and you don't want to have to lug someone up or down, you know, 10 flights of stairs. So, um, yeah, so I started in Boston uh, as a program manager the month before the marathon bombings. Okay. Yeah. So then you, only a month before, that means that there's not a lot of exposure to anything else there. And then all of a sudden you're in that. Yeah. Yeah. So my office, the office that I worked for was in charge of um, patient tracking for the marathon, especially like when you, I mean, the Boston Marathon is like one of the most infamous marathons. Um, I think it's also like one of the biggest marathons, like uh, uh, scale wise, size wise. Um, so at the end of it, you have these two large scale medical tents, uh, like right behind the finish line. And, um, 
so the my my team basically was uh, in charge of all the volunteers who were doing patient tracking. You know, we would scan bib numbers as they would come into the medical tent, make sure that people knew like, you know, which hospitals they were going to, especially for family members if they had to get transported out of the medical tent. Um, so uh, I had actually started my day in I think it was Natick, Massachusetts, which is probably like a thirty-minute drive from Boston. Yeah. Um, I think so, right, yeah. right along, yeah, like right along the um, the course, and like because it's so early in the course, medical tent out there shuts down like mid early to mid morning, because most of the runners have already come through. Yeah. Um, so I went back to bought like into the into Boston at the finish line, and I uh, went to the second medical tent, um, and I'd been there for maybe like an hour or so, and we heard like a massive boom. And then like, you know, 10 seconds later, another one and at the time, like we had no idea what was happening. We didn't have eyes on it. Uh, my supervisor was like, oh, people are saying that the um, there's like a catwalk above the finish line for photographers, for the yep. journalists and uh, photojournalists. So people thought that that catwalk had just collapsed or like the stands had collapsed um, until you actually saw what was happening. Uh, and then when it came out that it was an explosion, uh, my supervisor told me to go towards the like to the other, the first medical tent, like right off the finish line, um, probably like a five or six blocks away. So I, you know, grab my bag and I'm uh, trying to run up towards the the tent, and there's like just hordes of people running at me, like I could not get through. And all of a sudden, a uh, Boston fire truck is coming up behind me, um, and I saw that they were like clearing a path. So I actually, you know, dropped back and started running behind, like right behind the fire truck. So that the fire truck was clearing my path for me to get up to nice. the, the other medical tent. Um, so basically like with, you know, in my role at that time, I was not in a medical capacity. I wasn't like in an EMT capacity. Um, but there's always like that instinct and that thought of like, I probably should be going to do stuff that I've already been trained to do, even if it's not something that I do in this role, like, you know, I, I should probably do that, but I was new at the time and I didn't want to, stir the pot or like you know do something that was completely out of my scope at that time yeah. um so what you know we were doing at the time was uh you know we got all of our volunteers and like basically sent them home like get out of here like you know go home um this is obviously a safety issue life safety issue um and then once uh once things like once we figured out what was happening they'd actually already had an incident command post set up in a conference room of a hotel, like right, maybe like a block away from the, the, the finish line. Um, so myself and a few of my coworkers went up to that incident command post and were there probably till like two in the morning, uh, basically like supporting the operations from the, you know, the um, law enforcement operations. So like, you know, bringing in meals for, you know, supporting the, the first responders. So bringing meals in, like uh, helping with, um, like communication between a few, you know, different agencies, things like that. Um, you know, worked very closely with like the chief of staff that night from from our department, our agency, uh, to make sure that our teams were were safe and that our personnel were were okay. Um, and then from basically, I worked on marathon recovery for about a, I'd say a year after April uh, after the the bombing. Um, so the next day, you know, I go home at two in the morning probably woke up around like five o'clock um couldn't really sleep and then went into the we my office ran what was called the medical intelligence center in boston so we were we activated we were already activated for the marathon um and you know continued working um through the you know the following week so 
uh, they put me in charge of uh, coordinating with the Department of Health and Human Re uh, Services. So whenever there's a big incident like that, the federal HHS, Health and Human Services, uh, through yeah. the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response, ASPR, they'll send out uh, health and medical teams. And in this case, it was a team of psychologists to help do critical incident stress debriefs um, and hot washes. Um, so I worked directly with them, basically coordinating all of the debriefs, like mental health debriefs for uh, the public safety agencies, as well as, excuse me, the agency that um, the company that produces the marathon, because you have, you know, hundreds and hundreds of volunteers who also work the marathon. And they obviously have some level of trauma, whether they were there or not, they were impacted by it. Um, so we worked with, you know, our own city of Boston resources, as well as the federal resources to schedule and provide uh, debriefs for, you know, thousands of people, essentially. Um, but it was, you know, years of, or a, a year of recovery. Um, you know, after that, I was working on, a, we, soon after the marathon, um, a gentleman from the UK actually reached out and basically said that he was a survivor of the 7-7 bombings in London. Um, and he also happened to be an employee for Microsoft. And Microsoft at the time had this, this application called Yammer. It was like an enterprise, like chat software that you could use. Like, you know, let's say we work together. It's like Teams now, but it, okay. you know, it was called Yammer. Um, and they'd actually used it. They created a Yammer uh, uh, group for the survivors of 7-7 to allow them to basically share stories and help grieve um, wow. and like find comfort in one another. Yeah. So he was like, hey, I want to offer this solution for you guys. It's worked really well. He was a survivor. He also worked on getting that application set up. Um, so I worked with him and a few other folks to basically develop our, our Yammer community for the marathon survivors. Um, and they were, they you know, I don't know if they still use it. Uh, when I left the agency, I obviously, you know, lost that connection um, but I know for about a year year and a half people were using that to connect with other survivors and um, you know family members of survivors um, so it was a, a, a long process like you think about things when you're like on the front line you don't always think about the things like donation management uh, mental health recovery things like that so like out of the blue we were getting like phone call after phone call like hey I want to donate clothing or money I had a guy call say that he wanted to donate his house in California to someone for a week or like his boat. Um, wow. But like, how do you manage that? Like, how do I, how am I the person and then go to the survivors and say, Hey, we have this donation. Like, what do you want to like, who wants it? Yeah. Like, yeah. That's, that's not, you know? Um, so like donation management is like such a touchy subject in emergency management. Um, you know, it's, it's like a hot potato because like there's so much sensitivity around it. It's becomes like this behemoth of a thing when you have a big event like that. Um, so, um, yeah, it kind of fell on my plate a little bit and, uh, between that and getting this online community stood up and then also, um, helping us stand up the filming assistance center, which is, um, basically a location where the, uh, victims and their families can go and, uh, you know, figure out what resources are available to them, like through the FBI, victim services, the state, uh, you know, the state's attorney general office, things like that. Um, there's so many moving parts behind the scenes um, and after the fact that people don't always, you know, know about um, because oh, it's just, yeah. you know, what, what what needs to happen to support the, the survivors. Right. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, and everybody that's involved, not just survivors, but I know there were a lot of people that showed up there to the scene. We actually, one of, I'm, I'm sidetracking, I'm, I'm diverting yeah. here, but um, I when I went through my paramedic school, I went through uh, um, NM, NMETC was the school that I went through. And they had one of the speakers that came on was actually one of the medics there that were that was called mm -hmm. out and was first on scene. He was at the explosion side of it. So I know those guys had a lot of people going in through a ton of PTSD stuff and yeah, uh, all that post-traumatic stress stuff. So it was, it yeah. was incredible to hear and listen to, but dang, man. Yeah. It's uh, it's crazy. Like, you know, being a month in to a position, like not really knowing people and not really knowing yeah. the lay of the land yet. And I'm like getting handed that it's like, shit and then also like obviously the trauma for the community for the survivors and right, like you often right. forget that wasn't that wasn't like a one and done incident that was a week-long incident oh, because yeah. the brother the brothers the 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 not the suspects the guys who did it you know went on a went on the run oh, yeah. um so then like that thursday night you had the officer collier from mit police who was shot and killed by them Right. Um, and then you had the manhunt into Watertown and, um, you know, where one of the brothers, uh, you know, hid out in the boat and they had that whole fiasco. So, um, wow. it was a long drawn out trauma. And like, when's the last time you've ever seen like a major city like Boston go into like full lockdown? Oh, it, it was like, insane. Yeah. Insane. Yeah. Yeah. Like there it was wasn't just Boston. that went into a total lockdown. It was the entire surrounding area. And yeah. they were going like really all the way as far as Worcester, which is about a 45 minute drive on the highway yeah. doing like 80 miles an hour, which is not speed limit. That's above the speed limit. Just going to throw that out there. Okay. <laughs> but if you're doing For our 45 international minutes, listeners, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Fast. <laughs> but I mean, they, they really did lock down that state. Yeah. It was. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was uh, impressive uh, for a national response and a local response to do what they did for not only the manhunt but the recovery and the assets provided to all yeah. the survivors and victims. But, yeah, I mean it was eerie. Like that Friday when you would walk outside, like there's there's no one outside. There weren't cars on the road except for you know police and EMS fire. Uh, yeah. um, you know, a major city shutting down, like and people actually abiding by that. Like you yeah. think about COVID when people like, you know, the first few weeks when you were told to stay at home and like how many people actually did that? Yeah. Like, uh, yeah. Like, Oh, Aah. this is bullshit. It's a cold. It's fine. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, for that, that was, it was, it was crazy seeing that and being, being a part of that. Yeah. So. Yeah. Man. Wow. I, it's what a crazy story. And what you, what you did in the background for all that, that's incredible. Yeah thousands of people coming through you yeah yeah um and i was i wasn't i wasn't like a one-for-one one. you know i was working with different groups to help you know schedule and coordinate those debrief sessions um but yeah we i think there was like we ran the numbers at one point i think it was like 700 hours of mental health debriefs that we scheduled in like a two-week period week and a half with hhs and some of the boston uh and regional you know mental health providers um so it was, it was crazy. Well, good on you, man. Thank you for helping out with that one. Um, Cause I know there's yeah, a lot of, course, of people. Yeah. I, I'll even throw one of my cousins out there. One of my cousins actually had her own 
issues after it um, because she was, I don't remember exactly where she was when everything went off, but she would run the Boston Marathon every year. She would qualify for it. She would Mm -hmm. run it. And after that happened, um, she qualified again the following year and she didn't do it. She's like, she just, she couldn't pull herself together enough. And that's probably a poor choice of words, but mentally she wasn't there to run it again. That's the bottom line. Yeah. So she opted. Again, that that mental trauma. Yeah. That mental trauma is it's, it can be, it takes a toll. Yeah, for sure. So for sure. Yeah. Well, man, thanks for sharing about that one. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I know that's not the only thing you dealt with in Boston. (laughs) I mean, you were there for a couple of years, so yeah. Yeah. Boston's a big place. Adventurous. It is. It is. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, you know, it's, it's weird. I was, I've been trying to think back about like some of the good things, you know, listen to your podcast in the past. You always hear the, 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 um, the rescuers who have like the really good stories of like, you know, happy outcomes. And, you know, they were, you know, this family was lost for a week and we found them and brought them home and they're fine and they're great. Um, like, I just, you know, it's hard to think about those, those like happier stories. Um, you know, I, what always comes to mind is like, you know, the, the, the more traumatic things that have happened, um, the shootings, the stabbings, the suicides that you respond to are just like the, um, you know, the the people that call in their, their neighbor because there's a funky smell coming from their house and you show up and they've probably been deceased for like a week in 90 degree wow. weather with no AC. So, wow. um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, so we had a, uh, we had, when I was there, there was a show called Boston EMS. It was an ABC show that was produced by the same guys who did like um, uh, Boston Med and New York Med and things like that. It was like a docu-series and it would basically like follow, follow you around in like the ED or uh, on the ambulance. And they came and actually did a, a whole series on Boston EMS. It was two seasons. And uh, we had the film crew with us uh, one day and um I was working with a guy, Ray, uh, him and I had been partners for like, probably like six months or so. And we like, we got along fan, like we were great friends, uh, loved working together, had like the craziest conversations. And that's a whole other part of like the job, right? Is like, you don't get to choose who your partner is most of the time. So you gotta make the best of it. But like, you know, if it works out, like you guys become best friends and like, you know, you talk about the weirdest shit ever because you're <laughs> together for like, you know, 50, 60 hours a week, potentially yeah. you know, dealing with the same yourself. trauma. Exactly. Yeah. Um, for better or worse, sometimes depends on who your yeah. partner is. Right. Um, but but uh, yeah, you're dealing with the same trauma, the same experiences. So you, you, you form that bond. But anyways, we, we had the film crew with us one day and uh, we got a call for, um, I think, yeah, it was a shooting. Uh, like three or four blocks away from the station. So we, we show up and there was a double drive-by shooting. Um, it had just snowed. So like the roads are icy, there's snow on the ground. And if you've ever tried to wheel a stretcher through like snow and ice, you'll know it sucks. Um, so we've got like the camera crews in our face. We're getting our, our gear out of the back of the truck. I'm trying to grab the stretcher and the stretcher keeps like slipping away. Uh, it's just like a fucking mess. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, you know, two guys were, were outside of their house and I don't know what caused it, but, uh, you know, another crew drove by and, uh, shot up the street and, you know, these two guys had caught bullets and, um, you know, the only thing that, that stands between them and, uh, you know, potentially living is basically like 
pedal to the metal, like getting them down the, to the, to the hospital. And this is also like kind of on the outskirts of downtown Boston. Yeah. So the closest trauma center was probably like, um, without, without license sirens, probably like a 25, 30 minute drive. Um, like right up Blue Hill Ave, which is a long street full of lights and traffic. Um, so yeah, we're, you know, trying to package the patients up in the back of the truck. And, you know, again, we got the camera right, right next to us. Um, and, uh, you know, I hop in the front cause it was my day to drive and, you know, driving up there and they're interviewing you while you're trying to focus on the traffic. And, um, it's an interesting, ex- unique experience. Um, you know, unfortunately the, the, the victims didn't, didn't survive that one. Um, like just the it also just speaks like the the violence in our cities across the country and you know just continues to increase no matter where you are i know dc is experiencing like a huge uptick in crime right now um so at all like you don't think about like what's behind those numbers and the people behind those numbers so um it's always good to try and remember that at times that's interesting yeah I, yeah again it, a world that i don't usually see a whole lot of is is stuff like that yeah especially yeah. just in where i'm at and what i've done in my like where my career has taken me that's not it's just not where i've been so yeah um but different different form of uh serving the serving your your country your your community for sure for sure yeah. um i mean i remember specifically going through my 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 paramedic like ride along stuff and getting all my hours down in new bedford and that was um that was that was wicked for me it was it was crazy i mean we were we were straight out it was like you said earlier like that new year's day for you where you're just running and running and running that was me during my yeah and i'm like holy cow how did yeah it's impressive to watch all the emts and the medics out there that that do that on a day-to-day basis yeah and for for those who don't know the term wicked is a massachusetts colloquialism for uh cool and (laughs) thank you thank you for that one (laughs) it's wicked awesome (laughs) like if you're wicked smart you're wicked Uh smart. (laughs) Uh (laughs) that's really smart for everybody else (laughs) exactly yeah highly intelligent Oh, that's great. So, Jeremy, like, I want to, I want to change gears a little bit now. Unless you got any other stories you want to tell, of course. No, they're they're nothing happy. So let's we can move forward. Uh, well, I'm sorry to hear that. That's, that's <laughs> I get it. No, it's all right. I mean, there, there's definitely there's definitely good times, but it's the it's the the bigger things that you tend to remember a lot of times. So, yep. um, yeah, yeah, I get it. I yeah. I absolutely get it. Well, and you said it yourself, like you didn't want to burn out. Um, you you didn't want to do that. So you looked into going further. And now disaster management, is it international or national or both? Or where are you at with that? Yeah, so I did, um, once I left Boston EMS, I did some time as an emergency manager, actually at the uh, at MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, as like a, a higher education emergency manager. Um going from like Boston EMS when it's like pure adrenaline rush to a higher education campus did not work for me. It was so slow. Uh, I like, I couldn't adjust. I tried for a year and a half to adjust to the pace change. It didn't work for me. Um, so I, uh, I actually had moved out to California 
to San Diego and was working uh, for Team Rubicon, which is an international disaster response group founded by veterans. It was really meant to be a community for veterans once they return, once they uh, either retire or they separate from service, to continue supporting their community and to develop a community of like-minded veterans uh, who are focused on disaster response. Um, so I, they also have a, you know, it was open to public safety people as well. So I'd been a volunteer for since like 2012, 2011, uh, they started in 2010. Um, and then in, when I left uh, Massachusetts and moved to California, um, I started contracting for Team Rubicon on their incident management team. So I started uh, as a the uh, logistics section chief uh, for a while and then became an incident commander on the IMT. And basically like I was a contractor, I'd go around the country to different like big disasters, wherever Team Rubicon was, and uh, basically would will, would help support and uh, manage and uh, direct the their response. Um, excuse me. A lot of what I did was also like mentoring and coaching, like people who didn't necessarily have the experience but want wanted to get into like more senior positions, you know, command general staff position, whether it was incident commander, planning section chief, what have you. Uh, it was my job to coach and mentor them, um, and basically like base. Uh, make sure that the operation ran smoothly. Um, so I did that for a, a couple of years as a contractor, um, went down to, to Florida um, after, I think it was Hurricane Maria back in 20, 2018, 2019, 2018. Um, okay. They got like slammed by a huge hurricane and uh, we were there for probably like four, four or five months. It was one of our longest responses as an organization. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, so I was there. Yeah, I wasn't there for the entire uh, entirety of the operation, uh, but I think I did like three or four different, you know, two week stints down in, in Florida um, in both a uh, logistics chief and an incident command role um, at the time. So um, I loved it, like be getting the ability to travel to support like, you know, the, the organization, but also support the community in a disaster yeah. like that. Um, you know, having the opportunities to talk to homeowners when you're out there and just listen to their experiences of like how they dealt with the hurricane, the flood, um, like learn about where they've come from and, you know, learn more about the communities around the country. It's yeah. really eye-opening. Um, and I think if more people took it, the time or the had the opportunity to like go out around the country and like hear about other people's perspectives and experiences, I think we'd be in a much different place as a society, but I'll leave that there. Um, but, uh, it was great. Nice. I loved it. Yeah. I loved it. I did probably like four or five, like major hurricanes and a couple other, like, you know, more localized floods and tornadoes. Um, and then from there, I actually worked for team Rubicon full time, uh, managing their West coast disaster operations, uh, which was a lot of wildfire, you know, mitigation, wildfire response, recovery, um, you know, local flooding, mudslides, that, that type of stuff. Um, and then, yeah, uh, when I met Kat, actually Kat and I met through through Team Rubicon. Um, we were basically counterpart. She managed the East Coast, I managed the West Coast. Um, and so uh, she was living in DC at the time. So, um, you know, I'd come out here, we'd come out, uh, we went up to go see one of our colleagues, one of our friends during like the, you know, middle of the start of COVID. We had been working like 90 hours a week and we needed a break and um, that's how, you know, that's how that came to be but anyways Aww. Uh, um, Aww. yeah a little Funny. shout out to my fiance <laughs> so um 
yeah, when we decided that, you know, I'd move out to DC, I started looking for jobs and landed a job with uh, DC Homeland Security and Emergency Management Agency, uh, which is where I am now. I've been there for about two and a half years. Um, nice. And we are, we are the Emergency Management Agency for the District of Columbia. Um, okay. So we're not a state agency. We're not a city agency. We're in the middle because DC is not a state nor a city. It's a district because right. we're the, you know, the nation's capital. It's a weird, you know, weird in uh you know in the middle uh or in between um so i serve as the bureau chief for readiness and response coordination and then also the eoc manager the emergency operations center manager uh for the district very cool very cool yeah. man good for you yeah question when yeah. you you guys like you your company um your agency you guys show up on scene right and mm -hmm. and you said like for the hurricane, you were there for a couple of months. Uh, you go in for two weeks in time. What does it look like? Like, how does, what, what is you as a responder? Cause you're going in coordinating stuff. So you are, you're, are you the hub? Are you, you're dictating to all different agencies? Like, how does that work? Yeah. So that's back when I was with team Rubicon. So yep. uh, with team Rubicon, we actually have groups of volunteers, for like those types of operations. We would have, you know, anywhere from like, 10 volunteers to 200 volunteers deploying to an operation like that. Uh, um, and Team Rubicon, like the capabilities include like, you know, doing muck outs of a house, if a house floods, um, like, you know, stripping it down to the studs, essentially, if, if there was a potential for mold. Um, we had a uh, Sawyer capability, so we would uh, help with um, route clearance if there were trees down on roadways from a storm or if trees were down on houses or like, you know, massive trees fell on properties, we'd help cut those out and, uh, you know, push them to the curb. Um, uh, heavy equipment operations. So again, like thinking about route clearance, if trees are down and you're trying to open up a route for first responders to get to houses or communities, uh, we could go in with our heavy equipment team. It would be like a mix of heavy equipment operators and Sawyers. So they, you know, Sawyers would cut the trees, you know, and then the heavy equipment would push them off to the side to open up those those uh those routes um so you know in my role at that time i was um i was yeah i was in that more command control position uh so working with uh, you know my operations chief my planning chief to determine where uh what like mission assignments needed to get completed and we worked very closely with that that city that state emergency management agency um so everything that we did was in lockstep with them or you know at their direction so they would give us a list of different uh, work orders or priorities that they would need done that they didn't have the capacity to fulfill because their teams had a million other things that they also had to do. So we'd be able to take some of the burden off of them and uh, and send our teams out there to, to get the job done. Um, so how does that work so with, a, with like a call? So you said a route, let's, let's use, I'm going to use Main Street, uh, whatever. Yeah, so yeah. Main, Main Street comes in and they're like, hey, we need this route. Uh, set up route route depending on whether where in the world you're from i say i say route i don't know maybe it's a new england uh, thing maybe it is a new england thing i'm not really sure <laughs> but all right so main street's all blocked up busted up how does how do they let you guys know that like how does that information get to you and then how do yeah, you decide? so then you just like okay team you're blue team go 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 is that i'm, I'm probably exaggerating <laughs> with that my bad but a little bit. It's okay though. This is, <laughs> yeah. So there's, there's a few different ways. So 
Uh, one way that we've done it is, um, you know, we would have a volunteer that would sit in the emergency operations center in that okay. municipality. And by, by the fact that they were sitting in that room, they were either getting tasked or, you know, asked to task us with a specific mission assignment or work order. Um, or we would develop a relationship when we first go in with the emergency management agency, the director, whomever, and they would reach out and say, Hey, we've got this priority. Like, can you guys get it done? And, you know, we would then turn, I, you know, I, as the incident commander would turn over to my operations section chief and say, Hey, here's the priority assignment. Uh, like, you know, do what you got to do. And they would then assign the specific, um, strike team, depending on the capabilities that were needed to go out and, and take it, take care of main street. Oh, that's cool. So everything's yeah, based this, off the really the out of the RCC there, um, or I guess is that yeah, RCC, yeah. which is uh, EOC um, Emergency Operations Center. Yeah. Okay. EOC yeah. Emergency Operations yeah. Center. Got it. Yeah. Nice. But the and there there's another way. So there's also when a big event or a big disaster happens, you have volunteer organizations that come out of the woodwork, um, and they're organized through and uh, basically a construct called the VOAD, the Volunteer Organizations Active in Disaster. There's a national VOAD. Um, uh, committee or council. So like most of the major nonprofits are part of the vote, like national VOAD. Team Rubicon was actually the chair of the VOAD for a few years. They might still be, I don't remember. Um, and they basically helped to organize all of those volunteer groups. You have a lot of like religious volunteer groups, uh, like the Methodists, um, uh, you know, Lutherans, Latter-day Saints, they all have their own version of a disaster response um, organization. So we worked really closely with all the other volunteer groups. And there's actually uh, a platform. Um, and of course, I'm oh, disaster cleanup, I think it was. Um, it's a website where um, the city can go in and plug in different work assignments or areas. And then the, organ the volunteer organizations can go in and claim them and say, hey, Team Rubicon, we're going to take these five in this geographic area. So, you know, the Latter day Saints, don't worry about it. You guys focus on a different area. Um, but we'd also help each other out because we have different capabilities, different uh, strengths and you know weaknesses as an organization. So it's really about relationship building. And that's really what emergency management as a whole is. It's developing relationships, like you know, making sure that there's coordination and communication happening when you have multiple stakeholders involved. Wow. Man, that's crazy. That's cool. I like that. Yeah, I yeah. like that a lot. Yeah. That's so, so so really in all reality, then, Brad is the one that contacts you and says, Hey, go take care of this. Is that no vice vice versa now? Cause so I oh, work I work for DC this Yeah, yeah. Brad works for me. Come on, Brad. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so so Brad Brad now works. Actually, I don't know if he's with a I don't know if it's a nonprofit that he's with now. Um, I forgot. But I work for the like for the city. Um, so as a city, if we hit, were hit with a disaster, I would call someone like Brad and, and say, Hey, do you guys have the capacity to respond? We need okay. X, Y, and Z. We need heavy equipment. We need Sawyers. We need muck out. And he would say yes or no, and then send his teams in. And then I would, you know, my, my team and I would help direct where they should go based on the need at the time. Um, and really like, I've always said this throughout my career, throughout my life, like we're all working towards the same goal. The goal in this case being like helping the community return either back to normal or better than it was before. Uh, yeah. So like, why aren't we working together? Like we're all working towards the same goal. Why not work together, um, you know, to, to accomplish that mission? Because yeah. at times you have turf wars, you have organizations that don't like each other. 
because of something that happened like 10 years ago. And, you know, that's, that's still, and the people who, who were in position back then are no longer anywhere to be found, but you still have that grudge with that other organization. Like put the bullshit aside. You're here to help a community. Like just fucking get it done. Oh, I love that, dude. That's yeah. freaking great. <laughs> cool. Cool. Man, Jeremy, this has been yeah. an, uh, an eye opener for me. This is great. This is great. So now you're in your position in DC. Now you are, you're in a spot where people are calling and then you're sending out the resource or you're calling others to send out the resources in case something happens. And that's specifically in the district. Yeah. So um, yeah, so I work for the district of Columbia uh, in the district of Columbia. Um, obviously DC is unique because we're like around 69, 70 square miles. Um, but we, we are obviously have to work very closely with our counterparts, counterparts in Maryland and Northern Virginia because they border yeah. us on either side. Um, so like my job now is if there is an incident, even, even if it's like a signal alarm fire, if there's a house fire that displaces, you know, 10, 15, 20 people, uh, my team and I will go in, we'll help coordinate uh, uh, how we can support those displaced residents. Um, you know, working with other organ or agencies in the district, like the Office of Tenant Advocates, uh, Department of Human Services, Department of Health, things like that. They all, excuse me, they all have their own uh, specific capabilities that they can provide in support of an incident like that. So yeah. our job is to coordinate them, make sure that they're communicating effectively, you know, make, making sure that we're all uh, supporting the residents as best as we can. Um, and, you know, trying to deconflict things as much as, as, as much as possible. Love it. Love it, man. Yeah. That's awesome. Deconfliction, that's awesome. coordination. Yeah. That's, that's the name of the game now. Um, and again, it doesn't have to be, be the big sexy disaster. It doesn't have to be the hurricane, the flood, the bombing. Right. It literally can be like a one alarm fire that impacts a resident, um, you know, all the way up to those bigger events. Um, and we do special event support too. So like tomorrow we'll be supporting the Marine Corps Marathon. Um, oh, nice. We'll have our command bus out. Yeah, so we'll have our command bus out and we'll be working with different public safety agencies, um, you know, and supporting them on our platform uh, on, on the bus. So, um, yeah, that's what, that's what it's about is just supporting our partners and making sure that they can do their job effectively, because if they can't, then it's not a good day. Dude, that's fantastic. You know, I, I actually listen to Jocko from time to time and he talks about that, too. Yeah. you know, if you're doing your job and if everybody's doing their job, everything will run, the whole team runs smoothly. Well, shout out to yep. Jocko. So yeah, there we go. I like that. I like that. <laughs> yeah. Jeremy, this has been a blast. Thank you so much. Um, I, I do have one more question before I let you go, and that is, ah, it might be a two part. It might be a little, yeah, I think it's two part. So the first one would be like, if um, if it, somebody wanted to get into your position or kind of follow your route, how do they do? What do they got to do? Yeah. So um, I often like. My colleagues and I talk about this a lot, and we we all have the same understanding that like anyone can become an emergency manager. Like you can train anyone to do this job. It doesn't take like a certain school or certificate or degree to do it. Um, if you have common sense, if you're a good communicator, if you can coordinate things, and if you can sort of live like as being in the unknown because you don't know what might happen, um, then you can be an emergency manager. So um, I always tell people, like, look for any opportunity to volunteer, like get involved with your local CERT team, the uh, Community Emergency Response Team, 
you know, volunteer with organizations like Team Rubicon or the Red Cross uh, to get that experience. Uh, um, you know, take classes. FEMA has a ton of free classes. Some are online, some are in person. Um, but your city, your state often hosts those classes, like the incident command classes, uh, position specific classes. Um, so reach out to your state training officer, you know, go online. I know this is also like an international community that listens to the podcast, but go online and start looking at what your county, your country does for emergency management or incident management. Um, and just start like asking questions, um, make connections. I also think that LinkedIn is like one of those powerful tools you can, you can use. That's actually how I got my position now. Yeah. Um, I actually cold emailed or cold messaged, uh, the gentleman who's now our director, um, and asked him like for some 20 minutes to just chat. And, uh, he ended up, you know, we hit it off and, you know, I got a contract position and then became full-time with the agency. Um, so LinkedIn is your friend, use it. Like, don't be afraid to reach out and send a cold email. Yeah. Ah, good stuff. Well, that's going to drive into my next question. And that is uh, (laughs) a piece of advice from running EMS in Hartford all the way to now. If there's anything you would tell anybody doing the job or that wants to come up into it, what would it be? Hey man, uh, remain flexible, Semper Gumby. Um, you know, and then, uh, I would also say just make sure that you're a good communicator. Like if you are a good communicator that will serve you well throughout life, no matter what you do. Dude. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Jeremy, I can't thank you enough, man. Uh, this has been so cool. I've really enjoyed your, you being here and just telling the stories and and everything you're doing now, dude, I love it. I love what everybody does in the background because you guys, you don't get enough light in the limelight, I guess, is the best way to put that. Like you're, you're always in the shadows. Like, I, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but <laughs> you always see the guys on the front lines that are getting all this stuff. There's so much coordination on the back end that no one ever really talks about. And I, I'm so happy that we get to bring that to light today. So thank you, man. Appreciate that. I appreciate it, Jason. Thank you. Heck yeah. And if I can come crash your wedding, you know I'm showing up. I'm just hey, come on, come on, there. let's go. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> you know Cat will love it. <laughs> Even if it's just me, I might show up myself. I want hey if, dude, if do my it. wife come can on. come great. If she can't, oh I'm sorry, honey. <laughs> <laughs> uh, fuck it. Just come on out. Uh, we'll, dude, that's we'll, we'll give you a minute. We'll send you an invite. <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> Dude, Jeremy, I will, uh, I'll see you whenever I certainly can. Uh, when I get through DC, I, you know, I will definitely give you guys a call and, and we'll go hang out. We'll have a drink and it'll be a good time. So look forward to it. Thank you so much, Jason. Anytime. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we are out of here. Go. Now it's time for me to pull chocks and take off. But before I go, I'm always looking for the memorable rescues that people have done. If you have one that you're willing to share or know somebody who has a story, please feel free to reach out to me. I'd love to highlight it here at The Real Rescue. For everybody that is standing by for that SAR alarm, remember, those in distress are praying for a miracle. They are going to get you. So until next time, fly safe and swim hard. Thank you for joining me today here at The Real Rescue Podcast. Powered by Vertical Helicast. We'd also like to say thank you to our sponsors for this episode, Breeze Eastern. They dedicate themselves to our helicopter rescue world. 
Since the very first helicopter rescue in November of 1945, Breeze Eastern has designed and manufactured superior rescue hoist solutions. While much of the technology and the unique mission requirements have changed over the past 75 years, their commitment to the rescuers, the operators, and those being rescued has not. Contact them today by visiting them at breeze-eastern.com. Hey, rule number eight, embrace the suck. Not everything in this world is easy. Not everything is going to be handed to you. There are times that you are going to be absolutely miserable. You're going to look around and be like, what am I doing? What is going on? Why am I putting myself through so much pain and anguish right now? Well, if everything was easy, everybody would do it. Some things are just difficult or unpleasant. This phrase is applied to any of those crazy, challenging life situations that you're put through. The first thing you need to do is acknowledge the situation. Just acknowledge the fact that the situation you're in sucks. It's difficult or it's unpleasant. It's not easy. Don't sugarcoat it. Don't pretend it's not a big deal. Embrace it. Accept the feelings. You can be angry, frustrated, or discouraged, but it doesn't matter because you're going to drive on. Why? Because you're embracing it. We know it sucks. That's why we embrace it. You focus on what you can control and the rest will fall into place. There's another phrase that my wife and I like to use and that is, choose your hard. Marriage is hard. Divorce is hard. Going to the gym at 5 a.m. to make sure you're fit with a healthy diet, that is hard. Being obese and out of shape and not being able to do anything is hard. Regret is hard. Discipline is hard. Suffering is hard. Asking for help is hard. Life will never be easy. It will always be hard. That is why you need to choose your hard and embrace the suck.